Thank you for tuning in to School Mental Health, Beacons of Hope, where we gather diverse perspectives on creating inclusive school communities to support students. This podcast is brought to you by Erica's Lighthouse and hosted by me, Brandon Combs, Executive Director. This episode features special guest Jess Lawrence, a middle school health educator turned curriculum specialist and now consultant and director of Care and Guidance. Jess focuses on how education can support the whole child. She currently lives in Moorhead, Kentucky with her partner, his three children, and two dogs. Jess helped write the skills-based version of Erica's Lighthouse curriculums. Today's topic is the intersection between health education and school mental health. Hey Jess, thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks so much for asking me. I'm thrilled to be here. Absolutely. So I do want to make a quick disclaimer before we get started too far that you and I do have a little bit of a financial relationship um, from the standpoint of Erica's Lighthouse and Karen Guidance. Um, So that's not impacting any of the questions I'm going to be asking you. I'm confident it's not impacting any of your answers since that's not what we're talking about. Um, But do just want to put that disclaimer out there for anybody who's listening. Sure, that makes sense. So Jess, I want you to talk a little bit of kind of your background and particularly in regards to care and guidance and some of the work that you do. Sure. So my professional journey, um, I started as a middle school health education teacher. I taught seventh grade health education in Portland Public Schools in Oregon. Um, I went into health education because I had a fabulous high school health teacher. And um, I came home every day and told my parents at the dinner table that that's what I wanted to do. And um, I taught um, in North Portland and then a position opened up at the Oregon Department of Education and I um, took that position and I was the health education curriculum specialist for the state of Oregon. So we developed our state standards. I supported health education for the state. And I was also funded by Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in that position. So some of the um, priority deliverables that I had related to that grant. And that was working with a team of folks at the Oregon Department of Education and Public Health to focus on the whole child and do systems change in schools. So that's where my passion for kind of broader school health came from. When I left the Oregon Department of Education, um, it was because I decided to pursue a career as a consultant. And um, so we started Care and Guidance in 2006, and um, or I started it. And um, it was me and only me for a very long time. And um, our work is really to create a healthy school environment so students and staff can thrive. And, um, you know, my work and the passion that I have is around, you know, what what can we do to support the whole child? What can we do to ensure that all the barriers to learning um, are, you know, called out? We have, you know, supports, references, intervention in order for students to thrive and academically achieve. And I think that that passion started when I had a student named Charles and I was a seventh grade teacher and Charles um, was like falling asleep in class and then would have some behavioral stuff going on and we tried many interventions and one day mom came in to talk and it turned out that their heat had been turned off at night and he wasn't sleeping because he was cold. 
and you know she couldn't afford the bill and um it was kind of the moment where i thought hmm so i'm getting this pressure to raise test scores and for my students to achieve yet like <laughs> you know i have students that aren't in homes that are heated and so my passion for kind of this work and and thinking broadly about how we support students in a different way um, came to light. And so we uh, have continued to work nationally and we work through all different areas of health. Um, as you know, through mental and emotional health, also sexual health, nutrition and physical activity. So that's my life's work and my professional journey and it's been a joy. Wonderful. And I think one of the things that I'm so excited about being able to partner with you and Karen Guidance and the larger kind of health education community is there is this sense for me that kind of mental health has always been the ugly stepchild in some ways. Um, it's a difficult conversation, which we'll talk about a little bit later. And so how can we bring this to a more comfortable zone, um, particularly when we're talking about mental health? It's a conversation that I think is so interesting because teens actually want to be having this conversation and they, you know, it's not like when we'll talk a little bit later too about a little bit like sexual health, which is still even uncomfortable for teens to have that conversation with adults, but mental health is just such a conversation people are hungry to be having. Um, and really we're seeing it's parents and educators are the ones that are struggling. And so our role certainly is to help with that. And I know you've been a huge advocate and a champion for making that more accessible as well. So we appreciate yep. it. So. Very sure. Yeah. Well, one thing I know in your history, that in kind of your time, that you've really made a significant impact, and really the work we've done with you has really been around this concept of skills-based health education. Um, and just kind of in our this podcast, we're seeing that skills-based health education is really not a main conversation point among school mental health professionals. And so, can you explain that concept for those people that may not be aware? Sure, and, they, and it's quite possible they've heard it, um, but aren't really sure what it means from a very concrete perspective. So if you consider what your K-12 health education experience was, um, and I always ask people like, what's word? What, well, actually, Brandon, what's one word that describes your health education experience from middle school or high school? Yeah, so I, it was one semester. Yeah. Uh, one word, just uh, totally uninteresting. Uninteresting. All right. So when I did this last night with some educators, you know, I said like it was like ill-informed, embarrassing, um, irrelevant, um, and it was just heartbreaking. Um, and I think that the way that we used to teach health education, it wasn't very relevant. Um, you'd read a textbook, maybe chapter five on tobacco, <laughs> and you'd answer five questions and you'd move on. And, and you'd watch a video from three decades. That's three decades. Right. <laughs> In fact, when I inherited my my first classroom, my first year of teaching, I think it was 1999, my textbooks still said venereal disease. It didn't even say sexually transmitted diseases or infections. I mean, that's how old they were, right? So like toss that out. I can't use that. Um, but we know that when students have information in their head, it doesn't necessarily result in good decision making. It might help, but not necessarily. So we've learned over the years um, that functional information is essential. And what we mean by that is that the information and contact content, um, like what information and content do students really need to know to make a good decision or um, to be health literate? You know, they don't need to identify the 206 bones in the body in order to wear a seatbelt every time they get in the car. 
You know, they don't need to list the chemicals in a vaping product in order to say no to, you know, being offered it. Um, so skills-based health education means a few things. It means that that information is functional, which I just said. And what that means is what's the information that a student needs to know to make a good decision or to access correct information. Um, it's not everything that we used to think, right? Like you have to learn all of these things in order to make a de good decision. It really is just a few things. From there, schools-based health education um, means that the, the lesson or the unit typically focuses on one, maybe two skills, and students have opportunities to demonstrate those skills. So for example, they might learn why wearing a seatbelt is important at the elementary school level, and then they set a goal around it, um, and maybe they even, I don't know, model it in the classroom by using a paper seatbelt, right? Um, and that it's practiced over time. Or maybe students in middle or high school create a YouTube video on why wearing a seatbelt is so important. So they're tapping into advocacy skills. Um, so, you know, we're really looking at application and relevance, which was not how health education was taught. And we want to make sure that there's a logical progression as well. So that if I'm teaching healthy eating or nutrition, I'm starting with what students need to know. Let's say my goal is that they eat breakfast every day. Well, let's talk about why breakfast is important. You know, they don't need to know all the calories of every single, you know, item on their plate. That's not important. Um, but why breakfast is important, what it does maybe for your metabolism, how it fuels your brain. And then, you know, maybe they're going to set a goal around eating breakfast every day and what makes it hard to eat breakfast every day. And one of the examples I just would love to share is hand washing, um, especially now, right, during a pandemic. If you were to introduce hand washing to students, let's say even at the elementary level, maybe middle and high school as well, the teacher shouldn't just like slap up a poster and say, here's how you hand wash, good luck. That's not how you would ever teach hand washing, especially at kindergarten. You would talk to students about how, why hand washing is important. And I would say the functional knowledge around hand washing would be why we do it, disease prevention, how we do it, what you need to hand wash, how long you hand wash, right? Students don't need to color in the germs on a coloring page in order to hand wash. They do not need to look under a microscope and see what a germ looks like in order to know that hand washing is important, right? So that's the that's the like non-functional information. Don't need to know that. And then typically the teacher would model hand washing appropriately and then offer opportunities for students to model it and practice it, right? So that's what I mean by the progression. So skills-based health education isn't just the functional content, the skill demonstration, but it's also the progression that makes sense. Not just a, I'm gonna model it, good luck, but that time to practice over and over. And we need to do that with really every health skill um, through time. So I would just end this um, piece with saying, you know, for reference, the national health education standards are not actually content specific. You won't see drug education in there. You won't see mental health education in there. They are specific to the skills of health education. And those skills are um, analyzing influences, accessing valid and reliable resources, interpersonal communication, goal setting, decision making, self-management and advocacy. And so 
you weave content into those skills. So yeah, that's skills-based health education 101. <laughs> okay, that's great. And I think one of the things for me that is so <clears throat> interesting, particularly coming from this mental health space, that I know I'm really passionate about the skills-based piece being is this idea of like help seeking for our kids. I mean, in our program, we're all about, obviously you've helped us you know, really boost up that um, valid and reliable information piece. But at the end of the day, we don't want kids to just know how to look up that information or understand information about depression. We want people that are struggling to go and seek help. And whether that's from a teacher or a social worker or a parent, whatever that is, finding that trusted adult is key for us. And what I love is that this idea that the way we have been treating particularly health education and within the even on our model previously was this idea that if a kid was struggling at the time that program was delivered, great, we have captured somebody who might need assistance. But what I love about the skills-based piece is we're teaching a skill to them. And so even if they're struggling in six months or in two years, they have the skills already to go and seek that assistance when they need it. And this idea that like they're just gonna be magically struggling with a mental health challenge at the time of our program is simply unrealistic to the world. I love that you brought that up because it's similar to sex education, right? Like if students do have a very comprehensive sex education opportunity in high school where maybe they're introduced to contraception, it doesn't mean that they're necessarily sexually active right there then. Um, and hopefully, you know, we want our school age students to abstain and, and wait um, in, until later in life um, for a variety of reasons, but many of them are. And many of them are never going to get like an educator talk about all the options ever again, right? So hopefully, you know, they learn it so that in a year or five years or eight years from now, and it's the same with the mental health pieces, we want educators and teachers to provide opportunities for students to identify worrisome, troublesome feelings, emotions, um, you know, reach out to a trusted adult what, who a trusted adult might be, how you might reach out, or a resource or information, and do it. And we want them to practice that so many times over their health education career in the K-12 system that it is just like someone does two plus two, you know, because they're balancing their checkbook. I mean, seriously, I mean, and, and it's not just we got to introduce it once in high school because students only have health education for a year in high school. I mean, students should have it every single day throughout their K-12 career so that these skills are practiced. So yes, you're right, at some point, if they need to reach out or they need to refer a friend, they're able to do it as easily as doing addition of subtraction in mathematics. Yeah. And I, you're, what you had just commented on, like you're kind of like, I know you have a broader vision for what you would like to see health education. And I think it ties really well into also what you were just saying about when I'm thinking about kind of my K to 12 experience, which I know was, was some time ago. So it's not necessarily reflective of today. Um, but this idea of when I was thinking about you know, seatbelts or you think about, um, you know, don't talk to strangers with, I think it was Patch the Pony maybe, um, like these programs, you know, back in the day, but we're so um, disparate and disconnected from one another. There was not this logical progression of learning um, that you are really advocating for. And so kind of, how do we fix that? What does the vision for health education look like from K to 12? 
Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, right now, if an elementary teacher, um, you know, loves health education and teaching health education, it's taught in their classroom, middle school hit or miss and high school students usually get it once a year, or sorry, once through their high school career. So maybe a semester, maybe a year in high school. Um, my vision is that students have it every year. Um, it's Health education is the only content area that we use every single day of our lives. Um, you know, think about it now. Unfortunately, during a pandemic, we have a lot of adults who not, are not health literate. You know, we're struggling with wearing a mask. We're struggling with washing our hands. We're struggling with socially distancing. We're struggling with how to access, how to find free testing. Um, you know, and those are the skills that would be taught in health education um, to ensure that, you know, as adults, we're health literate. Um, so I would love to see um, not only more health education taught, but quality health education taught, right? Um, by certified and licensed health educators um, that went to school for health education and student taught in health education courses. And then also, you know, have a um, quality scope and sequence aligned to standards, um, skills-based, um, data-driven. I mean, we haven't talked about that, but the um, CDC's Youth Risk Behavior Survey, and then there are plenty of, you know, local surveys um, and public health surveys that our young people take, and that can really inform um, what should be taught. For example, in your community, uh, students might, um, you know, be binge drinking at a higher rate than the state average, um, where in another state it could be, um, you know, not using a condom during sex. <laughs> so, you know, it's important that the health educator is aware of um, those data in order to, to drive what they're going to teach. And, and from a mental health perspective, there's plenty of questions on the YRBS around, you know, do you even have an adult that you feel connected to? Um, you know, and it asks indicators for depression. It asks indicators for addiction. Um, it asks indicators around, you know, self-esteem and confidence. Um, and, you know, how do we use those data to, to really impact and drive a health curriculum? That is my vision. Yeah. Well, and I think for what we're looking at now, I mean, you have obviously kind of brought up the pandemic and the lack of health literacy surrounding it. I mean, even the valid and reliable information, which you've really kind of um, embedded into our program, it, you know, people are unable to tell the difference between real information on social media versus coming from, you know, a published scientific article. So, mm -hmm. so, I mean, the problem is very real, but I think even what you were talking about earlier, again, going back to this logical progression, I mean, that's, that's pretty impossible when you're talking about a student who gets maybe one or two semesters in high school. I mean, we look at the world of of even you know, social emotional learning or how math works. I mean, it lessons build off of each other each year and are age appropriate in that way. And so I think when we start talking, I'm gonna use sexual health and as, as an example, because it is controversial and it's easy and everybody thinks about that when they think about health education. <laughs> but it's kind of conversation when you say, you know, people, sh you should start sexual health conversations in first grade and people are are balking and it's like, well, it's age appropriate conversation. Sure that obviously and yeah. so it's not coming out of the blue when you're a freshman in high school and in your first semester and you're like I've never learned this before um, and you know putting proper preparation in place I so I think that's a really compelling point about that progression that we do in literally every other subject area we have in school yeah very true so. yeah 
when we're talking about kind of this skills-based health education piece, kind of how do you see that really specifically relating back to mental health and what we're talking about? Yeah, I mean, when we think about mental health, it's a dimension of our whole being. Um, and, you know, health educators shouldn't just be focused on the physical health piece, um, even if it's in their comfort zone <laughs> only. Um, and, you know, with such little access um, for students to get health education, you know, some students aren't receiving the knowledge and skills to celebrate, uh, take care of, maintain, advocate for their own mental and emotional health. Um, and it's funny because social emotional learning, SEL, is kind of the new buzzword right now. And, you know, all principals and superintendents want, you know, everyone to be doing SEL um, components in their school. And that's amazing. That is just amazing that, you know, we're starting to destigmatize this. We're starting to see the value of ensuring that our climate in schools is a safe place for all students. However, health teachers have been doing SEL for 100 years, right? And um, most administrators don't recognize that SEL is a component of a comprehensive health education program. Um, and, it, you know, let me share that like a really strong health education program would allow opportunities for students to express feelings in a healthy way. So when you said, what does that K-12 progression look like? Well, kindergartners, first, second graders, are they having, are they being taught and do they have opportunities to learn how to express feelings in a healthy way? It's quite possible they're coming from homes where they're not learning that. Um, and so are there opportunities to learn it and practice it in the classroom? Are they engaging in activities that help our mental health? You know, whether that's being active or reading or hanging with friends or taking a mindful minute or deep breathing exercises, preventing and managing interpersonal conflict, that's another skill in health education. Using self-control and impulse control strategies, getting help, like I said, for troublesome thoughts or feelings, showing tolerance and accepting of others that are different, you know, people that are different from you and establishing and maintaining healthy relationships. So that's kind of the comprehensive look of, you know, what a mental health program might look like, K-12, age appropriate, obviously, and all of these would lead to outcomes like healthy coping skills, destigmatizing mental illness, students feeling comfortable to go to trusted adults, prioritizing mental health and the self-awareness of it. And you can see that a program like this would really help adults, you know, because as you grow up, you know, being able to, you know, manage interpersonal conflict. I mean, that's something that all of us have to do regularly sometimes. Um, you know, so I think that that is really how skills-based health education relates to mental health specifically. Yeah. And I think so much of what, you know, a completely separate topic, but it would be fascinating to have at another point. I mean, how much of what you're talking about fits into this discussion on equity frameworks as yes. well and being sure, I mean, that we're, we're elevating kids and supporting kids where they are. Um, it's such a big piece of this too. And you've, um, not directly hit on it, but you've absolutely hit on it. And I just wanted yeah. to point that out as yeah, well. So. Definitely. Yeah. So one of the things, I mean, we've heard about from health educators as well. And I, you know, I know that in health education, there's a lot of uncomfortable conversations, you know, in, in a math word problem, you're not going to be addressing, you know, you know, it's like how fast is the train going? Isn't going to really raise red flags. Right, right. But I think there's certainly, I mean, when we're talking about health education, um, people are really fearful of some conversations. And this is absolutely true when we're talking about mental health as well. So how do we overcome that fear, particularly when we're talking about 
about depression or suicidal ideation in general school mental health? Yeah, there's a few things. I mean, I think that it's important to understand why people might be fearful. Um, you know, if it's if it's because they fear what parents or the community might say, then it's really important that a principal and superintendent have the curriculums back, if you know what I mean. Like, I don't want educators to fear a parent going to the school board. I want, you know, my administrator, if I'm a teacher, to say, I totally support what you're teaching. Um, and I think that, you know, if school boards and leaders and health educators can share with a community, if it is, you know, the fear of the parent piece, um, if they can share those data, like the youth risk behavior data to say, you know, this is, you know, our, our this is how many students, you know, might be, um, you know, struggling or, um, you know, have troublesome feelings or don't feel connected to an adult. And so we want to make sure that our school counselor, our school social worker, our school psychologist and the health educator are collectively addressing this in different ways through curriculum um, or, you know, groups or whatever they might be. So I think, you know, one thing is, again, using data. Another is making sure the administration has your back. And then sharing what the curriculum is you're using. You know, what program are you using? I always promote using a curriculum program that is evidence-based or based in best practice, or it's a promising practice. Um, I know that teachers create their own lessons all of the time. And that's that I, I'm not gonna knock that because I think that you're never going to find the curriculum that is like perfect for your students' needs and the population of your students. So I think it's fine to like fill in with lessons that you might create on your own. However, curriculum that's out there, whether you purchase it or it's no cost, if it is research-based or based in best practice, it's usually developed because it was developed by pedagogists with two to three behavioral outcomes that they are looking to achieve. And it's usually based on the skills progression and there's theory, it's based in theory. So educational theory, change theory, adoption of behavior theories. And some teachers know this, but they're not necessarily applying it to the lessons they're developing. Cause they, they might be great teachers, but they might not be like excellent curriculum pedagogists, right? So, you know, one thing is share the curriculum and use a strong curriculum. Um, Another reason why health educators might be fearful is that the content for mental health might bring up their own trauma or student trauma. And I think that's important to recognize as well. And I, I talk to educators about this. You know, um, there's more and more professional development on creating trauma-informed classrooms, which I think is amazing. So that's a great place to start so that the teacher or educator feels comfortable with creating an environment or a climate that feels safe for all students. And some don't know how to do that, so they're learning. Um, also, creating a space for students to know what the syllabus looks like ahead of time. So, you know, okay, students, you know, in September, we're going to be addressing, you know, healthy eating and nutrition. And then in October, we're going to be heading into, um, you know, the content area of, of mental emotional health. Like it's good for them to know that and then what they're teaching. You know, it's important that students know what's coming up. And the students might want to do a self-check around their own self-awareness of how this topic might be to teach to students. And I think that, you know, if they have 
their own trauma related to it um, or embarrassment or whatever it might be, co-teach it with a school counselor, you know, um, co-teach it with a social worker. And then the other piece is educating students on some of these topic areas can be draining. Um, compassion fatigue is real. And I think that it's important that teachers learn how to self-care and, and recharge after the, this unit. So that's what, that's what I would suggest. Depends on where the fear comes from. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think one of the things that we see a lot from the fear coming from educators too, has to deal with that again, like mental health conversations are uncomfortable and this underlying sense of like, what if I say the wrong thing? I think, you know, there's been a ton of discussion in the, in the suicide prevention, mental health world about 13 reasons why. And I think one of the greatest disservice the show does is the, the way the school counselor is portrayed and how hurtful and unhelpful and counterproductive his comments are. And at the same time, watching it is setting back and having this fear of, have I had that conversation? Mm -hmm. um, in that same way, am I doing more harm than good? And we regularly will have, you know, cart before the horse conversations with school districts. Is it better to just not teach it? <laughs> because then we, it's not gonna come up. Um, so that's something that we see a lot too. Yeah. And I think, you know, one thing that, you know, I'm, I'm like such a schemer, Brandon. So I'm like, oh, you know, it'd be really cool. And I know in sex ed um, organizations have like created avatars for teachers to practice scenarios um, in kind of how to answer a question or whatever is, you know, providing some professional development. And maybe Erica's Lighthouse already does this. But, you know, could we create something where you know, there's that practice adult to adult kind of that role play piece um, or even a document like when students ask this, here are some suggested ways to answer it. And I um, use an answering difficult questions protocol, um, which really shows like a range of beliefs if it's a value or belief based question. Um, and then also, um, you know, if, it, if it's a fact based question, you know, always kind of like the references, but it would be really interesting to see what are those questions or topics that come up that might trigger a teacher um, to either be uncomfortable or not know how to answer it or to be embarrassed or whatever it might be and have some suggested answers um, or yeah. practice time. Um, because I think you're right. Um, it used to just always be like the sex ed, but I think now that mental emotional health is being taught more widely, which is I think amazing. Um, there are probably topics that come up that um, educators just don't know how to answer, possibly around suicide or mental illness um, or behaviors like cutting. Um, and so an educator might not know how to respond in a way that might be um, trauma-informed, culturally responsive, appropriate, et cetera. Yeah, and I think one, you know, the, the question we frequently get a lot is not even coming from the health educator or the school counselor or the social worker. It's coming from the general ed teachers in that school where the program is being taught. And it's the, what if I'm the trusted adult? Like, what if one of these kids is trusting me to be the person? And obviously we're addressing that as best we can with the educators, but I think it's such a fascinating reality and you had touched on this at the very beginning when you were kind of talking a little bit about your background. And I'm actually going to be having another video podcast topic on this, but that whisk model, this whole school, whole community, whole child, and this sense that, you know, these are these are school policy conversations and these are school professional development conversations. And so I think it goes back to the same concept of that logic progression within health education. It's also within a certain school building and people need to be aware of these conversations that are coming up and that we're talking about. 
Yeah, and I, I love um, in Ohio at Wright State, Kevin Lorson's an amazing resource. And he, he created um, with partners um, a, a similar kind of policy progression for schools. And it's called How Can I Help? And um, it starts with recognizing. So it's teaching teachers how to recognize anything among their students that might be worrisome or troublesome, um, reaching out to the student and how to do it referring the students appropriately, and then the recharge piece, meaning, again, that compassion fatigue or that secondary trauma, you know, if it was a traumatic situation for you as the educator to refer the student or it triggered something for you, how are you going to recharge? So again, I really just, and anyone could take this and use it, you know, for themselves, but again, it's that recognize, reach out, refer, and recharge. And you're right, it's not just a program, it's policy. Um, and how do we set up educators to feel comfortable with that process? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think one thing in particular, I think, you know, at the crux of this conversation, we're talking about health education and out of so many teaching positions in a school, those educators are really in the most unique position of providing really highly relevant, potentially life altering information to these students on a daily basis. So how can we better support these educators with additional resources or refer referrals to be better prepared for their job and for interacting with these students? Yeah, I mean, we've mentioned it um, so far. I mean, some of the things, you know, um, you know, are related to the fear piece, you know, how do we equip educators um, to use data? Um, how do they ask their administrators to, you know, have their back and the support? How do they, you know, select curriculum that's, you know, strong and relevant? Um, but, you know, I think an organization like Erica's Lighthouse is, is doing such a great job. I mean, you're offering free or no cost resources. And, you know, it's incredibly helpful because um, sometimes schools and districts have dollars to purchase curriculum, but not always. And um, so it's really a, important that there are resources at the fingertips of our educators that are relevant, that they are aligned to the education accountability measures. And what I mean to that is that the curriculum or the lessons or the program are aligned to the policies and laws in which they need to teach. Um, so it could be Aaron's Law, for example. Um, they're aligned to local, state, and national health education standards. Um, they're relevant. They're free of bias and stereotype. They're trauma-informed. Um, organizations like yours that provide technical assistance or professional development on the lessons so that educators have opportunities to see the materials and even maybe teach back opportunities with each other to practice teaching the activity with peers before teaching students so that they can actually process and start to apply what this might look like in the classroom. Um, and then just regularly asking educators what they need. Um, you know, what do you need right now? Um, and I think that, you know, partnering with educators and figuring out what they need is a key piece to that. So, you know, I, I just, I appreciate, you know, Erica's Lighthouse among other organizations that are out there and provide no cost materials because it's just a great resource for educators. And I have to tell you, I can't even begin to tell you how many agencies, organizations push out material that's just doesn't align to those things that I said. They could be free, um, but they're pushing out materials that aren't relevant or aren't free of bias and stereotype and potentially could be harmful. So, um, 
you know, I'm always trying to teach teachers through the lens of these are the criteria you should look for. Yeah, yeah. And I think particularly, I think one of the things that I think is we're excited about in this space as well, and you had, you had mentioned earlier, but like this intersection between health education and school mental health, which is why you're here for this conversation. You talked about co-teaching and this idea that, you know, we we all should be working together, which we're huge advocates of, of a social worker, a school counselor working in tandem with a health educator. But I think this skills-based piece in particular has so many more legs outside of just a health education classroom. So as kind of a partner with Erica's Lighthouse and looking at us as an entity, like what else can we be doing to help promote kind of this skills-based piece to our social workers, to our school counselors, so that they can see the value of this skills-based approach outside of a health education classroom? I love this question because it's a systems question. <laughs> and I love systems thinking and systems change. So a couple of things. I mean, when I think of the whole school, whole community, whole child model, there's a lot of components within that framework that support the whole child. And, and a piece of that is the curriculum, the health education curriculum. Um, another piece is the, the school climate, um, the physical environment is safe. Um, and then, as you mentioned, the social worker, the school counselor, the school psychologist, or even the food service, you know, is the cafeteria a place that is promoting a mentally and emotionally safe space for students? Um, and so I think it's important for organizations like Erica's Lighthouse to, yes, support the health educator and the health teacher with the program and the technical assistance and professional development to teach it, but even opportunity um, to bring awareness to what skills-based health education is. And awareness is the first step to systems change. You can't make a change. You can't even prepare to make a change unless you're aware. And so the more that we can share with school nurses and school counselors what skills-based health education is, they're more likely to support the health teacher, but then also when they see students in a variety of settings, whether they're helping a student manage their asthma um, or helping a student in a after school group around self-esteem and body confidence, they can incorporate the skills piece, right? If they're aware of what the seven skill standards are of the National Health Education Standards and a school nurse is working with a student to manage their asthma, there's goal setting, decision making, self-management right there. And if the school counselor is doing a group and can reference the health education program and, um, you know, how to access a valid and reliable resource by taking which bus to whatever they need to go to, that's just going to reinforce what's learned in the health class and vice versa. So I think, you know, whatever awareness um, your organization and others can do to bring, you know, light to the health education standards is really helpful. And I have in the past partnered with the National Association of School Nurses and ASCA, School Counseling Association. Um, and I'm very aware of their frameworks. And, um, you know, way at the top of those organizations, they're aware of the national standards. So how do we continue um, to promote so that we're collaborating? And that WISC model means consistent messaging. So what's learned in the health classroom, when they walk out of that classroom, is there consistent policies, practices, and programs that are supporting what, they, what they've just learned? Because if it's inconsistent, students pick up on that. Yeah, and I think you've really hit, I, I, one of the most exciting things I think about kind of this position and what we're doing at Erica's Lighthouse is that piece that we're trying to bring so many of these different people together and have these conversations together, which I think is pretty unique 
um, from that mental health position, kind of tying it back into health ed and, and this, how can we all work together to kind of get kids into the best place possible and set them up for success later in life. And so um, you being on, on here is just one piece of that. And we're deeply, deeply appreciative. Um, so thank you so much for joining us today, Jess. Is there anything else you'd like to say before we close up? No, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much. I just, I really appreciated the partnership between Karen and Erica's Lighthouse and I hope it continues. So thanks so much for having me on the podcast. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Jess. Take care. Take care. Thank you for joining us today. Please like, share, and subscribe to this podcast. For more information about Erica's Lighthouse, please visit ericaslighthouse.org. If you have any ideas, suggestions for future topics, or are looking for more information about our programs, please contact me at brandon at ericaslighthouse.org. Have a great day.